Welcome to this week's podcast from Suncoast Church. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au. We hope you enjoy this message. What makes you happy? Hey, welcome everybody this morning. We are starting our conversation, a new series. It's a great day to be here. So glad that you're here for the first installment of What Happy People Know. A couple of years ago, uh, my brother and sister-in-law gave my daughter the, a gift. It's not, They didn't only just give her a gift a couple of years ago. They give her a gift birthdays and Christmases. But a couple of years ago, they gave her this. It was inside a gift and and Emma's opening it up. And she's like, oh, a candle. Thank you so much. And, you know, she's smelling it. She's like, oh, thank you. And then my brother says to her, what does it say? And she goes, whatever makes you happy, just do that. And he's like, yeah, no, don't. And, that, and so this, this little candle in our, in our house is like, you know, the candle that gives really bad advice. It's a bit of a family joke. A candle gives really bad advice uh, that turned into a moment of good advice. And so when I said to Emma the other day, oh, we're starting this new series called What Happy People Know. Can I borrow your candle? Anyway, so it's a bit, of a, a bit of a joke. I'll just leave it here for stage decor. I want to ask you a question this morning. What makes you happy? And I think there'll probably be about as many responses in the room as people in the room or as people streaming online. Hey, big shout out to those of you who are on YouTube this morning. So glad to have you with us. What makes you happy? What makes you, what puts a smile on your face? And for some of us, it's going to be like nothing. Nothing. I just want, I want space. I want like no noise. I want, you know, no demands, you know, nothing, nothing would make me happy right now. And for others of you, you're like, oh, no, 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 I'm like the more high adrenaline person. I want the rush after an extreme sport event or crossing the finish line or what have you, you know, Caleb Reed would be in that category. I'm not trying to categorise Caleb, but I just, I know that he's up for, you know, ridiculous marathon length races and things like that. And some of you, you're like, I just, I'm so happy when the housework is done. I just need to get to the bottom of my to-do list and tick everything off. Maybe you're a spreadsheet person and you're like, I love it when it balances. I can't see any responses to that one out there. But so, so many different things make us feel happy. But I want to ask you another question. What makes you well? What makes you healthy? And are your responses to what makes you happy and what makes you well, are they the same? Or is there a difference? Um, in my day job, I research and lecture in well-being, particularly with teachers and students. Uh, it's an important area in education because um, often well-being or ill-being, the lack of well-being, uh, negatively impacts learning. And when we look at well-being, there's two main areas, and we draw upon Greek words um, when, we, when we have a look at well-being. There's two main areas, pleasure and purpose, or in Greek, hedonism and eudaimonism. Now, you don't need to remember the Greek words, but as a follower of Jesus, I find this a little bit fascinating because the teachings of Jesus were originally written in the Greek. And so I'm kind of like leaning in a little bit, you know. Jesus talked about living a blessed life. And when he was uh, taught using that word blessed, the interpretation of that in the Greek, when the, the, the people who, the eyewitnesses to his life wrote down what he said, when they wrote it in Greek, the interpretation of blessed is happy or to be well, to be flourishing. And there's kind of two schools of thought in the area of well-being. One is pleasure-based well-being or hedonism, um, you know, sens- sensual gratification. 
And the other is to live a purpose-driven life. Um, eudaimonism, or the idea of living with meaning. You know, finding, and it tends to be a bit of a search and quest kind of uh, well-being. And most um, health professionals are leaning towards uh, living with purpose over uh, living with pleasure. Because even though pleasure is nice, it's actually hard to sustain, isn't it? You know, there's no end to your desire. And we all have natural appetites. And just because we have an appetite for something doesn't necessarily make it a bad thing. It just makes it something that we need to sometimes bring under, you know, some kind of discipline. Because if we took, you know, what we want to the absolute end of, you know, to the nth degree, to the extreme, and we just, whatever makes you happy, just do that. Well, I think my daughter was about 14 when she got given this gift. What would a 14-year-old want? YouTube, 24 hours a day, burgers, fries, and ice cream. That, you know, that would make them happy. Is that sustainable? I don't know, but if it was me, I'd just turn into a potato. You know, like if we just follow our desires to the end um, and, and that's all we do, eventually either I'm going to hurt myself or somebody else is going to get hurt. And it's not that desires are necessarily a bad thing. You have a natural appetite for food because your body needs nourishment. But if it turns into gluttony or excess, then you're going to do the opposite to nourishing your body, aren't you? You're going to hurt your body. Have you, uh, for dating couples in the room, if you, uh, this is a little bit of a line that you should be looking out for. Maybe you're dating uh, for the first, you know, for the first time and you're wondering if uh, this is going to be it. Just, you know, maybe, maybe pause, take a breath. Um, maybe you're dating and you're new in a relationship and maybe this is, you know, uh, you're hoping, maybe you have been married before and you're hoping one day to marry again. There's a little bit of a line that you should be looking out for uh, when, you, when you're in the beginning stages of a relationship and that's this one. All I want is... Because you know that once that want is met, there's going to be another thing. And maybe all wasn't the proper description, you know. All I want is, all I want is a little cute house. And then you get the little cute house and you're like, now all I want is a bigger house. Or all I want is a holiday. And then you, get, you go on the holiday and you're like, darling, is this, the, is this what all you wanted? Are we done now? Oh, no, no, no. No, so it wasn't all you wanted, you know. And so really, as a dating couple, that should be a cue to ask more questions. What do you mean all you want is, you know, because you get married and this is what it turns into. All I want is a baby. Really? Like, you know, and yes, children are an absolute blessing, but that's just not going to cure whatever that black hole is, whatever that need is inside. So pleasure-based happiness is not, there's no end to desire. And it's not sustainable. And we, we know this. Now, so that's why, as a society, we lean towards a purpose-driven kind of well-being. And a lot of psychologists will talk about, you know, finding meaning and finding purpose and, and fi doing, doing things that get, provide you with space in your mental health and things like that. And I'm not a health professional, so I'm not, I'm not going to speak into that space today. But do keep coming along. Do keep coming back because... Dr. Chris Moller is, is a health professional and we'll be talking into that space in a couple of weeks' time. So we're going we're gonna to deal with that. We're going to deal with, with the, mental, the mental health side of well-being in coming weeks. But the thing with purpose is that not all purposes are equal. Not all purposes are necessarily good. 
And you can have a purpose-driven life or a purpose-finding you know, purpose and seeking meaning and life, and it can end up in stepping on people to get there. <laughs> Maybe you've lived with somebody who was so focused on their purpose that it left you in the wake. And maybe you were the person who was stood on for the sake of somebody else's purpose. So we can't just look at this, that these two kinds of well-being and go, oh, well, pleasure, pleasure can, you know, everything in moderation. And then what's, what's my purpose and what's my meaning? Because that might not be enough either. Particularly, and some of you have lived long enough to experience this, particularly if you have a major shift of purpose. Or you think that your purpose is one thing and then you realise that you're probably putting pressure on people too much. To, you know, you're, you're clamping them down. The classic case is, you know, you give everything to parenting and then you realise, oh, hang on a minute, th these kids can't take the full pressure of my meaning in life. And so you need to, you know, you need to, or then they grow up and they leave and then you're like, oh, <laughs> what's my purpose now? Sometimes it happens in careers. You start off in a career, you head in a direction, and then after a while you're like, oh, I'm not sure. And then you shift direction. And then sometimes it causes you to self-doubt. You know, what, what am I, you know? And so there's a tension around having, um, mean, it, deriving your well-being, your sense of flourishing, your sense of wellness from having a purpose as well. Now, I'm not saying don't have a purpose. Having a purpose is a good thing. It's way better to have a purpose than no purpose at all, right? So I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to pull the rug out from underneath of us this morning, but I know that you're smart enough to know that these tensions are real. And that, they act, and that they exist. And so as a follower of Jesus, my question is, God, what is your perspective on this whole idea of happiness, what it is to live a blessed life, and what it means to be well. What does it mean to be well? We're gonna, I'm gonna, today I'm going to have a bit of a conversation about a guy. He was one of the leaders of the first century church. And he was, he was somebody who knew very well the corruption of having ill purpose. He started off in a, in a direction that he would have sworn black and blue was the purpose of God. He was a young man who grew up amongst the religious elite and he, um, he, he was well-schooled in, in Old Testament teachings, what we would call the Old Testament teachings in the Mosaic Law. He, he was a, a Jewish boy of privilege, so he would have been educated. Now, this is before the printing press was invented, so educated meant oral tradition and memorization. You know, one of those highly intelligent, memory-based, oral tradition kind of people. He would have memorized a lot of the law of Moses. He would have known what King David wrote in the Psalms. He, he would have known what King Solomon wrote in the Proverbs. He was a very smart boy. We know that um, his name was Saul, and we know that he spoke, he would have spoken Hebrew, probably spoke, spoke Aramaic, highly likely spoke Greek, as that was the business language of the time, and he was a Roman citizen, so he may have also spoken other languages. So he, he was one of these gifted, privileged people. And when he grew up and became a young man, it was at the time when the Jesus followers, who they called the followers of the way, uh, were starting to grow in numbers. So this rabbi called Jesus, who was a carpenter's son, much of lower class than Saul was, <laughs> he had... had had three, about three years of a teaching career, of traveling around Israel and teaching people. And then he died, uh, he was crucified 
as a traitor. And then he, the, then the story was, or the rumor was, that he rose again. And many people were claiming that he was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God. And this was not an isolated incident. Because the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, were looking for a Messiah, they knew that he was coming. There was more than one claim to be a Messiah. But the trouble with this Jesus who came from Nazareth was that he died and then he disappeared. And that there were eyewitness accounts to his reappearance after, to his resurrection, to his reappearance after he had died a death on a Roman cross. And so this, this was troubling to young Saul who had grown up as a Pharisee, as one of the religious elite who was incredibly educated in, in Judean law. And this was troubling because he saw this mushrooming, this growth of this group of people called the followers of the way, meaning Jesus' way, as a threat to his religion, to his culture, and to everything he knew. So he got permission and he thought he would have thought that it was the most godly thing that he could do. He got permission to strategically persecute these, these Jesus followers. And he went around Israel from town to town, systematically persecuting the followers of Jesus. He was on a mission and he would have told you that he thought that it was a godly mission, that it was the right thing to do. And he, he got, it went so far that he was involved, he was an accomplice to the first um, martyr, the first person who was stoned was Stephen for his faith. And he is Paul, Saul, who later became Paul. I just gave it away, but most of you know. Um, Saul was there. He, he was there at the stoning of Stephen. He oversaw it and he became an accomplice to a murder because his desire and his purpose drove him that far. One day he's on his way to a town called Damascus and a bright light shines out of heaven, probably brighter than the ones I'm staring at right now. A bright light shines out of heaven and there's this voice that says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Jesus himself spoke out of heaven and interrupted him that day on the road to Damascus and he, he, he was blinded by the light and he fell to the road. And he realized that everything he had ever lived for was worth nothing. Everything he had ever hoped for was never going to come to pass. Everything he ever wanted wasn't going to happen. And as a matter of fact, he had to realize that he was wrong and this was like it was an immediate realization but it was a long journey of change Saul actually he he withdrew from society for 14 years he kind of disappeared off the face of the planet you know the Christians who were expecting him you know there's whispers Saul, you know Saul is of Tarsus he's coming to Damascus we get ready there's going to be persecution he never showed up that day he disappeared he left. He, he did meet with a couple of the church leaders, had conversations with them, wanted to get to know who this, what they saw, what their eyewitness accounts were of Jesus' life and his resurrection. And he withdrew for 14 years. And he went through a process of 14 years of unlearning everything he'd learned and relearning about the ways of Jesus. 
See, what, what, will, what does life mean? What is my purpose if everything, is, everything now comes through a filter of Jesus being the Son of God? What does the law mean if Jesus is the Son of God? What does my religion mean, my family heritage, my culture, my, my, my hometown? What does that mean if Jesus is the Son of God? And it was a really long and, and significant journey of what he would later call the renewing of his mind. And when Paul came back into circulation, he came back as Paul. He came back as one of the, as a disciple of Jesus, somebody who had spent years studying in light of the, the, the idea that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, in light of the truth that Jesus was the Son of God. And he started to go around to churches encouraging them. You know, 14 years later, hey, you might remember me. Last time I was in town, I oversaw Stephen's murder. But today, I want to let you know that I have been radically changed. And his life took a 180-degree turn when he met Jesus. Jesus didn't come along and say, you're wrong. You've done the wrong thing. I'm going to punish you. You're a loser. Just leave everybody alone and write him off. No, when he met Jesus, he encountered the grace of and the mercy of the Savior, the truth and the love of who Jesus was. And it radically transformed his life. And then he devoted the rest of his life into teaching people about this grace that he had found, about this truth that he had found, about this unconditional love that he had found. And he was known for his humble and, um, and sometimes underwhelming uh, manner. When he, was, when he preached. Uh, sometimes people would criticize him for it. They're like you're, like, you're so timid in person, but you write these really strong letters. But you know, this was a man who, who was broken. He was an arrogant and proud young man who was dr- purpose-driven, and then he was broken. And in the rebuilding of his life, up from nothing, you know, when he had everything pulled from out from underneath of him, he, he developed a persona of service and of love. He often, he was imprisoned for what he did. Obviously, he joined the movement that was a threat to everybody. The followers of the way who later became Christians, they were first called Christians in Antioch, um, in, in, you know, not in Israel, outside of Israel. Like, and it wasn't like, oh, you're a Christian, like it's a compliment. It was like a swear word, oh, you Christians. You know, it was, a, it, was, it was a, you know, it was an insult. Um, so Paul has joined the church. He's leading the church, one of, one of many leaders. And he's, he's investing. He's traveling around. He gives his life to traveling around the early churches that were rising up or in, both in Israel but all around um, the Roman, Roman Empire. So into what is modern-day Turkey, modern-day Greece, and all the way over to Italy. And he gives his life to investing into the followers of the way, to the people who were Jesus' followers, and in this, he often, he was imprisoned many times, he was shipwrecked a couple of times, and he really lived a life of service from, from then on. And one time he's writing a letter, actually it's one of his first letters that he ever wrote. He's writing a letter to the church in Galatia, 
And he's, he's talking to them about this whole idea of how your desires can corrupt you. And I tell the story of Saul who turned into Paul uh, this morning so that when we read this letter that he wrote to Galatians, we don't just read it like, oh, that's nice. Then, then it's a nice philosophical concept. This is a guy who lived it. This is a guy who lived a life that was on a path of success. It, he broke down and he, and he allowed Jesus to rebuild him and repurpose him, reinvest into him a new meaning and a new sense of significance. And this is what he says to the Galatian church, one of the first letters he ever wrote. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. And the reason he's writing this is because they're having this little argument about whether or not the men should be circumcised. I know, that was a bit left field, wasn't it? But that's what they're doing. They're having this conversation because most of the first, the first Christians came out of Israel. They were good Jewish boys who had been circumcised at eight days of age. Um, if you don't know what that is, maybe ask mum later. Um, but they were circumcised at eight days of age. They have no memory of it. They're, they're now over t- taking the teachings of Jesus outside of Israel. And, you know, Greeks and Samaritans and, you know... Other people, Romans, are coming to know Jesus and they're starting to be Jesus followers. And the Jewish boys are like, well, then you've got to do this little procedure. <laughs> and, they're, and they're trying to mix their, their original culture and their original religion with the new ways of Jesus. And so Paul's addressing this. He's addressing this, but he's, he's going to go a little bit deeper. So this is sort of where he starts. He goes, guys, brothers and sisters... So, you know, obviously the women were in on this conversation as well. You were called to be free. Following Jesus should make you better at life. It should make you more free than you've ever been. And Paul isn't writing these words emptily like there's some kind of philosophy that, oh, here's a great idea. He's saying, I have followed the strict, I have kept the precepts of my religion. I have followed the strict rules. I have met every ordinance that was, that was required of me. I lived a highly religious orthodox life and I, was, I have been converted. Jesus saved me from that. So don't go back and pull the little bits that you want just to suit you. He's saying to them, guys, we were called to be free. And maybe if you're not a Jesus follower here this morning or you're listening online and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, maybe you're like, that's probably not what I would have thought about Christians. I would have thought that Christians are probably have more constraints than other people in the world. And I would say to you, I would encourage you to investigate that question or that thought. Because what you will find about the Christian religion, about people who follow Jesus is that it is so emotionally freeing and it is so spiritually freeing that you find that, you know, other things um, aren't so constraining. And let me explain this a little bit. Um, Christianity, the, the, follow, the followers of Jesus, is one of the most adaptive forms of religion in the world. So in most religions, all religions, I can say fairly confidently, have certain ways of dressing, certain foods you can eat, certain rituals and practices you have to do at certain kinds of times of the day and seasons of the year. And there's a lot of conformity and a lot of um, taking on a particular appearance in all religions, except for Christianity. 
You will find Christians in Africa, Christians in the South Pacific, Christians in China who have all slightly different practices, who all look like they're, they're from, their, from their own culture. Christianity is much more adaptive. And, and Paul is saying, guys, don't just take on a cultural formation. Jesus came to set you free. And then he goes to them, but don't you go using your freedom just to do whatever you want. And he starts to speak into the human condition of, well, if I'm free, if Jesus loves me anyway, if God's given me, if God gives me grace, then I can just get away with it, right? And he actually speaks to this, this part of the human condition in Galatians. And, he, and he, he says, don't go, just go doing whatever you want. Don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. And he's saying, just because you don't need to get circumcised doesn't mean you can just sleep around. That's actually in Galatians. You should read it. And, you know, just because you don't need to cons- limit the foods that you eat, you can eat all foods because Jewish people don't eat all foods. And so it doesn't mean you can turn into a glutton and overindulge and numb yourself with too much excess. And he says, don't do that. Don't indulge your flesh. Rather, use the freedom that you've been given to serve one another. And then he goes on. The guy that knew what desire taken to the extreme looked like. Remember, he's the guy that was so driven by what he wanted. And then he says this, so I say, walk by the Spirit. Walk according to what is God's will and you will not gratify the lusts, the desires of the flesh, meaning your your human desire, your natural carnal, what you want. He says, for the desire, the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with one another so that you are not to do whatever you want and he drills right in like he does in so many of his writings because don't forget this is a guy whose life was broken and hijacked and rebuilt and repurposed and so he has gone through a lot he was smart in the first place and now he's just a walking talking you know wise man this is the guy who's who who knows what it is to to follow passion and to follow Um, a purpose to the point where it causes damage to people around you and he drills right in here and he says there's a war that goes on inside of us I don't know about you I'm sometimes I feel like it's just me (laughs) why do I want to do this but I know that that's not good for me but I do it anyway you know and he says there's a war that goes on inside of us There is a war that's going on inside of us and it's between the spirit, your spirit man, the God-created part of you, the person who was created by God, the breath that was breathed into you by your creator, that part of you. There's a war that's going on inside of you, that part of you that knows that you have a purpose and you have, there is a plan for your life, not because you can create your own or dream up your own, but because God has a purpose for you, because God created you with value, because God has breathed life into you and values you and loves you so deeply. And he's talking to that part of them and he's saying that part of you, well, let's call that your spirit person. There is a war between your, the spiritual, your spiritual health and the desires of your flesh, the desires of your, of your humanity. 
And often we lean towards desires and we lean towards our, our appetites because we want to mask our insecurities or quieten our fears, don't we? But you know what? Happy people know that feelings are indicators. They are not good leaders. And we're going to talk about this more, so I really encourage you to keep coming back. But feelings are there as, as, as indicators for us. They're there sometimes to get us away from issues. If we can just, yeah, feelings are there, sorry, I beg your pardon. Um, feelings are indicators, not good leaders. They're there to protect us, to get us away from harm if we need it, to help give us the courage to walk towards something. Sometimes that anxious feeling that you're feeling inside of you is just preparing you for the battle. You know, or it's just preparing you for the moment. Uh, and so our feelings are there to, so that we can monitor our health and our well-being. And I'm sure uh, Chris, Dr. Chris will talk about that maybe a little bit more. But he'll talk about physical, physiological health more. And I'm not going to venture into that space. But, so feelings are there to, for, as indicators, but they're not always good leaders. We can't just do whatever we want. Otherwise, I would just eat chocolate cake all day because I like it. Feelings are not always good leaders. And what Paul is saying here, you know, there's a battle between what you desire and your, the spirit God-breathed part of you. He's saying that some appetites need to be fed and others need to be starved. Happy people know that both pleasure and purpose can put you on the throne of your own life. If you're not careful, an ill purpose can make you the ruler and the king of your own life just as much as, as you know, as, as a pleasure-based existence. But happy people also know that being on the throne of your own life limits you to you. That if you're the ruler of your own life, then the extent of your own life will only ever be you. Paul continues the conversation in Galatians 6, and he says this. He says to the, this same church, this same group of people, he goes, don't be deceived. God's not mocked. He's not a joke. You know, there's this principle in life that it's all around what you invest is what you're going to get. If you sow negativity, you're not going to get positivity. And this is what he says to them. If you sow to your flesh, you will of your flesh reap destruction. But if you sow to your spirit, to the things that God has purposed for your life, to the value that God has placed in your life, to, to the will of God, you will of the spirit reap everlasting life. And Paul is saying here that there is a life that extends beyond temporal passion, temporal pleasure, and even beyond temporal purpose. Let us not become weary in doing good, he says, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. And then he makes it really practical. And he says, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. As we read the accounts of the people who met Jesus, people like Saul who met him in a miraculous encounter, or people who wrote the writers of the New Testament who were eyewitness accounts to his life. There's a really strong pattern that anyone who met Jesus wanted to become like Jesus. They liked Jesus and they wanted to become like Jesus. And when they met Jesus, their lives took a major turn for good. 
Their lives took a major turn away from getting like Paul was trying to do. He's trying to get control. He was trying to get rid of, trying to eradicate the Christians. Away from getting and away from controlling towards giving and towards serving and towards loving. Happy people know that meaning and purpose is found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I want to invite you back. I want to invite you to lean into this conversation as we unpack this idea of living a blessed life, of finding happiness and finding well-being from, a, from a pers- the perspective of a Jesus follower. Over the next few weeks, as we lean into this conversation, But would you let me just pray for you before we close today? God, I thank you for the examples that you've left for us. I thank you for the examples of people who thought they had it all together, but realized, God, that they really had nothing until they found the purpose that God had for them. A life that was led by your spirit and not according to our desires. And God, we pray that you would help us. God, we live in a society that is so desire-driven. Father, we pray that you would help us. God, to lead our feelings and lead our desires well. God, to starve what needs starving and to feed what needs feeding. God, so that we can be people who bring life. We can be people who bring encouragement. We can be people who bring love and truth and justice and mercy to those around us. And if you're in this room and you wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, but perhaps this is something that you want to find more out about, I would encourage you, I would encourage you to pray a prayer that goes along the lines of, Jesus, show me who you really are. God, I don't want to know just what culture says, what society says. Jesus, I want to know who you really are. God, we pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you are truly blessed by what you heard. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au.